0: friends and Bob's a friend uh, long-standing. So those of you who don't know anything about Bob, which of course nobody knows, him, he has uh, written many books on uh, on the foreign affairs and uh, especially the geopolitical aspect of them. He is a senior fellow at the Center for the American Security. He's a senior advisor to the Eurasia Group. he reported on foreign affairs. Decades for the Atlantic. He was an uh, analyst for SCATFORT. He's a member of the Defense, Defense Policy Board, and he's a member of the U.S. Navy's Executive Panel. And Foreign Policy magazine, twice referred to him as one of the world's top 100 global thinkers. His essays have appeared in many different places, uh, in addition, of course, to I just uh, In 2004, he received the Distinguished Alumni Award by the University of Connecticut. In uh, 2009, he was given the Franklin Public Service Award by the Foreign Policy Research Institute, my other organization on the editor of WarPAC, and he's also a in WarPAC. And of course, uh, the recipient of many other awards. Uh, I would like to start by saying that in in the 1990s, when the wall came down and when we had their quick victory in the First World War, a lot of people decided that geography didn't matter anymore. That somehow had been basically overtaken by uh, by technology, that all of these things we thought we used to know about the importance of geography had been uh, transcendent. Bob never accepted that, and uh, you know one of the things I remember is uh, so many places around here, the government we tend to break up the world by bureaucratic categories. So somebody who focuses on the Middle East doesn't pay any attention to other parts, and maybe that allows you to dig deep, but it doesn't allow you to connect the dots. And one of the things I've always said about Bob Kaplan is he's one of the guys. Who connects all the dots? So, uh, please join me in welcoming Bob Kaplan.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to be here today with you, and I've got a lot of ground to cover over the next thirty or thirty-five minutes. So I'm going to I'm going to get right into it. Uh, you know, part of the problem with crafting a sustainable foreign policy is you have to work with the material at hand in terms of what's actually going on on the ground in 190 countries. And the further you get away from that, the more problems you're going to have with your foreign policy. So foreign policy starts with an understanding of what's really, really happening. And just for an example. Uh, I've been a foreign correspondent for 30 years and in about 100 countries. And to me, the, the, the great distinction in regimes was never between democracies and dictatorships. It was between one kind of dictatorship and another kind of dictatorship. It was like, what does Saddam Hussein, who would kill 3,000 people in his prisons every month, have in common with the Sultan of Oman? who's an absolute autocratic dictator but governs according to liberal humanist values. And there are many other examples I could show. You know, the Chinese and the Russian regimes might both be autocratic and newspaper parlance, but the the cultural differences between them are extraordinary, which is why they don't trust each other at all. Um, So let me get started here. It's not the technology. It's not that technology has defeated geography. That's not true. What's happened is something far more subtle and nuanced. It's that technology has shrunk geography. It's made the world more anxious, more nervous, more claustrophobic. Think of the world as like on a a tight web world where if you pluck one string, the whole system vibrates. What this means is that a crisis in the South and East China Sea can now affect a crisis in the Middle East or the Black Sea or Baltic Sea Basin as never before. Um, after all, the Chinese are building a 155-acre military base in Djibouti at the mouth of the Red Sea. So um, every crisis zone is interconnected as never before. Um, This is why, um, whereas even just 20 years ago, the word Eurasia was just a high school geography term. Didn't mean anything, really. But now, Eurasia is increasingly a coherent system of rivalry, trade, and conflict because of technology. Not just fiber optics, not just airplanes, but new new methods of building roads, pipelines, bridges, railways. Uh, Let me give you an example of just what I mean about this new world. Take India and China. India and China uh, emerged as two vastly different civilizations with very little culturally in common that were divided by the high wall of the Himalayas. Yes, indeed, um, Buddhism spread in Middle Antiquity from the Indian subcontinent to China. And the Opium Wars in the middle of the 19th century united India and China in the same conflict system. But those were aberrations. They were exceptions. Essentially, India and China were in two completely different orders. Now look at the world today. You have an Indian intercontinental ballistic missile system that is focused on major cities in China, targeted on major cities in China. You have Chinese fighter jets on the Tibetan plateau that can incorporate the Indian subcontinent in their of operations. You have Indian warships in the South China Sea. You have Chinese warships, including submarines, throughout the Indian Ocean with the Chinese building a military base at the far western end of it. And you have the Chinese building or helping to build or helping to finance state-of-the-art ports with military uses in Myanmar, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Tanzania, um, all surrounding India. So it is precisely because of the way military technology has defeated, is defeating distance that India and China, formerly having nothing to do with each other, with languages completely unconnected, now are locked in a new geography of rivalry that never existed before in history. And I can play this out around the globe with Russia and China, North Africa and Europe, and on and on and on. That's what I mean by the world is tightening. It's becoming more claustrophobic. Now let me dig a little bit deeper, going into the Middle East, Asia, and Europe. Let me start with the Middle East. I know on college campuses you can't use the word imperialism. It's like sexism and racism. What I'll also say is that if you don't have a neutral, analytical understanding of imperialism, you cannot hope to understand the geopolitical world. I mean, why are, why are Turkey, Iran, Russia, and China so, uh, so dynamic, so aggressive, so vibrant? Because they emerged out of deeply embedded imperial systems. And their foreign ministries still are very imperial in nature with hundreds, if not thousands of years of imperial tradition to draw on. So that gets me. Why is the Middle East in the last quarter century so violent? What's happened in the Middle East that you won't read about in the New York Times or the Washington Post? It's this. It's that for the first time in modern history, the Middle East is in a post-imperial phase. That means the Ottoman Turkish Empire disappeared after World War. The Ottoman Turks ruled from Algeria to Iraq. And under their rule, whether you were a Jew, or an Arab, or a Sunni, or a Shia, it didn't matter that much. Because you all owed loyalty to the Turkish Sultan in Constantinople. Uh, That's gone. The British and French imperial mandate systems, which governed governed, uh, what is today Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, they disappeared in the late 19th. When they were in power, it may not have been fair, it may not have been nice, but they governed. And everything was it was order, it was stability. Uh, then you had um, what I call the post-imperial strongmen. Men who ruled according to artificial borders laid out by the European imperialists. And because the borders were artificial, these men had to be extra brutal and invent new secular forms of identity. What I'm talking about is Gaddafi in Libya, the Assad family in Syria, and the string of Iraqi dictators that culminated in Saddam Hussein in the late 1970s. Um, These men were brutal wasn't nice, but they gone, and everything was in order. Okay. They're gone or mostly gone. Then you had the Soviet and American imperial systems. Um, John Darwin, a great Oxford uh, historian, writes that the American and Soviet systems during the Cold War were imperial in all but name, meaning they're, um, whatever they may claim or deny their responsibilities and challenges were exactly aligned with those of past empires in history now again you know the american, the soviet system disappeared after 1991 and the american system has been weakening dramatically over the last quarter century because power is not just about the number of aircraft carriers and fighter jets power is about wise decision making and more importantly continuity in decision making and when decision making from one administration to the other has no continuity power completes and that's what's happened in the middle east so all these imperial systems have gone and the middle east is left to its own devices what does that mean it means there are two kinds of states in the middle east One I call age-old clusters of civilization. States like Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, places that were real states going back to antiquity. Um, uh, Tunisia is heir to greater knowledge. Egypt is the Nile Valley. These are places where citizens, the inhabitants, are not only Arab and Islamic, but they have a strong identity that is secular and tied to a particular state. And because of that, when the Arab Spring came to these countries, there was turmoil, there was government change, there was quite a bit of upheaval. But there was never any question that the state would survive. Of course it would survive, because these were real states. Um, But then you have the other kind of place in the Middle East, what I call vague geographical expressions. Places that were never meant to be states in the first place. But places like Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen. Um, and these places, uh, with the exception of Yemen, because they were so artificial, had to be governed ex- with, with extreme suffocating forms of authoritarian. Uh, so much so that I used to go as a journalist in the 80s and 90s from Syria and Iraq to and Egypt. Yes, Syria, I mean, yes, Tunisia and Egypt were dictatorships, but going to those countries from Syria and Iraq was like coming up from liberal humanists there. You know, uh, you know, because the differences between the types of authoritarianism and the depth of it was so great. Um, now, bet- these were regimes that between in Syria and Iraq, Libya particularly, were between the regime at the top and the tribe and the extended family at the bottom, there were no intermediary levels of political or civil society because of the suffocating nature of the regime. So that when the regime was toppled or collapsed or partially collapsed, there was nothing but dust and chaos left over. Um, And Yemen's an exception. Yemen was brilliantly ruled by Ali Abdullah Saleh, Thirty years, whereas his predecessors lasted six months or a year before they were assassinated, and you know, and the West, in all its wisdom, demanded that he go because he was a dictator, and the result was chaos, a cholera epidemic, a Saudi invasion, um, etc. Um, and but then you have another kind of regime, and then I'll, then I'll leave the Middle East and go to Asia. You have Iran and Turkey, which are deep. Historical imperial civilizations. If, I've, I've had the privilege to go to Iran a number of times. It's a wonderful place in terms of speaking to young people. Others, uh, it's you know, it's really rich, fascinating discussions. Iranians have a civilizational sense of themselves that only the Indians and the Chinese have, or the Japanese have. There is nothing artificial about Iran. There has been an Iranian state on the Iranian plateau since the Achaemenids um, uh, in, uh, in, in, in 6700 BC. Um, and whether it's the Achaemenids, the Sassanids, the Medes, the Parthians, the Khajars, or the Ayatollahs now, it's the same Persian imperial tradition with imperial influence from the Mediterranean Sea to about the center of Afghanistan. And if you map out where Iran really has influence, it's the same. Nothing has changed. There is nothing artificial about Iran, unlike Saudi Arabia, um, which is far more artificial, uh, artificially conceived. Turkey, similar story to Iran, an empire since the Seljuks in the High Medieval period. uh, Saudi Arabia is, and I'll end here on the Middle East, has 29 percent youth unemployment, uh, a diminishing underground water table, narrow pyramid of succession of power widening out into nests of grandchildren. Uh, you know, the new crown prince is an extent, you know—is an example of that of this change of these new tensions, and um, it's far more beneficial than Iran, far less institutionalized bureaucratized in Iran. And and here's just an idea to throw out. And there's a lot of turmoil now in the Arabian Peninsula because American power has been weakening so much over the last quarter century. If this is just an idea, it's not a prediction, something to keep in mind, that if this dispute between Saudi Arabia and Qatar is not settled in, eight months, a year and a half. Pick a time frame. The Saudis and the Emiratis may very well invade Qatar, topple the regime, and we will stand by and do nothing because the Saudis will make sure we have a long lease on the air that's there, and the Iranians will also do nothing. It'll be like Saddam invading Kuwait, except we won't have skin in the game like we did then. It's just an idea about the turmoil that's going on now in the Arabian with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia will never stabilize you. If anyone tells you that Saudi Arabia can win outright, you yeah, have to walk out of the room because the person's not a serious person. Um, all right, let's move to Asia. Asia, opposite scenario. Rather than weak states, you have strong states. Why have we read so much about the South China Sea, the East China Sea. The last few years, what's going on? Aren't some of these disputes, like the South and East China Sea, go back centuries? Yeah. Here's what's new. Throughout the Cold War, you had Asian states were internally focused. You had China, Mao Zedong's revolutionary arenas, internally. Deng Xiaoping's new economic mechanism, quasi-capitalist development in China, internally focused. Japan in a neutered quasi-pacifistic state stemming out of the bad experience of militarism in World War II, except for trade internally focused. Vietnam War, the Malay Peninsula War with a communist insurgency. Singapore only getting started in 1960s didn't become the economic dynamo until about the late 1970s. So all these places were internally focused. Then what happened? You had 35 years or so of sustained dynamic capitalist, or in China's case, pseudo-capitalist development. And what happens when you have more than a third of a century of dynamic capitalist development? You get massive military acquisition. And that's exactly what happened. China, for reasons of newfound status, of trading around the world, suddenly had security concerns it never had before, and built uh, built the second greatest navy in the world with ballistic missile systems, fifth generation fighter jets, and all projecting power out. And what is Japan? Japan registers China as an existential threat and rediscovers nationalism. And, uh, and, and you know it makes this psychological change to having a military that can reject power outwards, even though Japan, for the last 20 years, has had one of the, wor- uh, one of the world's most powerful militaries, but you don't view that much. But now there's been a site. I just got back from Tokyo Friday night. There's been a real psychological change in Japan. Vietnam has been at peace since the war with China in 1979. What has Vietnam done? Institutionalized, bureaucratized, build a navy, an air force, etc., to project power out into the South China Sea. What does uh, Malaysia do? Similar story of Vietnam. Singapore is, like in military terms, a little Israel in Southeast Asia. In the terms of their military force, their ability to do a lot with very little. Well. Um, so, Asia, and lo and behold, all these states are focused at projecting power outwards, and they discover they have differences of opinion over who owns what in the South uh, or East China Seas. Uh, three, three little points here. Uh, one is no matter how much we negotiate with the Chinese. We will never convince them to do anything different than what they're already doing in the South China Sea, and the reason is it is profoundly in their interest to do what they're doing, because the South China Sea for the Chinese is what the Caribbean was for the United States in the 19s and early 20s. It's the key foundation for world power. You know, America dominated the Caribbean, dominated the Western Hemisphere. And was able to project power into the other hemisphere. That's what the 20th century was all about. The Chinese um, dominate the South China Sea, have unimpeded access to the Indian Ocean. Then there are two ocean navy, not just a one ocean navy, and they become the dominant power maritime power <coughs> in Eurasia. Um, one Belt One Road. What's it really about? It's a branding operation for the roads, railways, pipelines China has already built throughout Central Asia. It's a way for China to reach Iran, and because China is investing heavily in Iran. And China plus Iran is an unbeatable combination that will really undermine one country's power. And it's not ours, it's Russia. Um, because that's the real competition in Eurasia between China and Russia, though the newspaper headlines often, often indicate the opposite. Because they're only concerned with ephemeral things, not with deeper processes going on underneath. Um, and by being more secure on land, China has the luxury to go to sea with its navy in the Southeast China Sea. Because except for the early Ming dynasty, China does not have much of a marathon tradition. Finally, Korea nation, before I turn to Europe. Um, it's not analytically helpful to look at North Korea as a communist country. What helps is to look at it as a national fascist state, like Chao Chescue's remains where the real hatred is not against the South Koreans. It's against the Japanese. Um, Remember, the Japanese occupied the Korean peninsula not just during World War II, but from 1910 to 1945, 35 years. North North Korea's hatred of South Korea is nearly ideological um, towards Japan, its racial and ethnic. And what North Korea seeks to do is not only divide us from our allies in South Korea and Japan, but to divide set, our allies from each other, divide South Korea from, from Japan. So that North Korea will seek to get us into a conflict where the Japanese are have a different policy than the South Koreans, and we have a different policy than both of them. And we can play this out in Q and A, how all of this can happen. Um, the Chinese are in a very difficult position in the, uh, in, in, in the Korean Peninsula because the Chinese obviously don't want a regime collapse because that could lead to two million refugees into China. Um, at the same time, the Chinese are aware that if this crisis goes on indefinitely at this level of tension, it could lead to Japan. A nuclear arsenal of its own, which would undermine China's attempt to have a peaceful, benign, tributary imperial system throughout East Asia, which is the real Chinese goal. Um, again, it's back to imperialism, um, which never goes away. You know? um, and uh, so we can get more into the Korean Peninsula in. You know, the Q&A. Let me just touch on Europe for a moment. Um, uh, I, it's interesting, I was in Greece and Germany also in the last month. Uh, Greece is Eastern Orthodox like Russia. It's as close to Moscow as it is to Brussels. Greece, um, and Greece has you know, you know, significant tensions with the European Union owing to the German bailout, partial bailout the you know, and the Greek, Great Greek uh, Depression, um, but it's interesting. Russia is not moving into Greece. The Chinese are. The Chinese have been building, you know, been, been enlarging and building the the, the Athenian port of Piraeus for the Greeks. The Chinese are making significant investments for all over Greece. The Chinese have more money to spare than the Russians, and the Greeks are more willing to have the Chinese in them because the Chinese build things on time. They don't lead to a culture of corruption to the degree that the, uh, that the Russians do. Um, uh, to, to listen to Greeks talk about this is very revealing, because Greeks, unlike, and other people, uh, unlike Americans, have, have, uh, can very easily discuss culture, you know, cultural differences between people, which official. <laughs> Washington has trouble doing because you cannot quantify it, therefore, it's a minefield. But elsewhere in the world, people get to this first um, as an issue. Um, Russia. Russia knows that it was invaded not just by Hitler and Napoleon, but by Swedes, Lithuanians, Poles, Teutonic Knights which means that Russia desires a soft traditional zone of imperial influence throughout central Eastern Europe. Not like the Warsaw Pact. That was too expensive and it failed. Uh, it's uh, What it means is using cheap forms of subversion, buying local media through third parties, um, buying off corrupt politicians, running various forms of disinformation campaigns, running organized crime networks, intelligence operations, doing everything very inexpensively to undermine democratic governance from Estonia in the north to Bulgaria in the south. Um, uh, So that's one issue of Europe. The other issue is I'm an optimist on the European Union. I think it will survive. Um, I wrote an essay in the New York Times last spring where I called the EU the necessary empire. Because like, it, it, it is only under the, an EU umbrella that countries like Serbia and Albania can find their way to permanent peace, that the Balkans can be truly stabilized, um, and that you know, Russia and you know, countries like Poland and Hungary can ever hope to have a truly prosperous, stable future is only under the umbrella of the EU, which is like the old Holy Roman Empire in the 70s. Um, so, if the EU disappeared, you'd have to reinvent it. The EU will survive, but you'll also have the rise of region states, of, um, you know, you'll have strong states. Um, speaking about strong states, the only thing, countries like, a country like Bulgaria, it's in NATO, it's in the EU, but it doesn't mean very much. Um, what it means very much is that the Russians and the Turks are fighting over Bulgaria's and the only thing that's keeping the Russians and the Turks at bay is German economic power. Uh, as much as the Turks would like to, the Germans trade a lot more with Bulgaria than the Turks do. That's just one example of what's going on in Europe today. 28 years after the Berlin Wall fell, the difference between core Western Europe and Central Eastern Europe is still not as extreme as it was then, but it's still significant. Extremely significant. Um, let me just say one more thing about Europe and close up with some thoughts. Um, the big historic question for Germany is this: if Germany's. You know, if Germany ever really had an undermining political crisis, Europe would be in a lot of trouble. What keeps Europe basically stable and even optimistic is German political stability. Um, the most important German in the 20th century, in terms of leaving a legacy, was not Konrad Adenauer. And Adenauer set the model for German chancellors, meaning no experiments, small government, um, a, a, you know, a moral memory of what happened in World War II, uh, you know, a very close relationship with the West because of the Cold War, etc. And all German chancellors—Schroeder was a bit of an exception, but not that much—have followed the Adenauer law. And the question is for Germany: 75 years since World War II ended. You know, when you know when will German chancellors grow out of the Adenauer? And adapt, you know, and rediscover, uh, you know, a form of nationalism like the Japanese are already doing. Uh, you know, it's inevitable. You know, people are upset over the, uh, the new alt right party in Germany. My opinion is, why didn't it happen ten years earlier? It's amazing that it took this long um, um, for it to happen. So Germany will change, and that will change Europe, um, you know, immensely. Uh, A a word I forgot to mention about Putin. Um, I spoke to a former Egyptian foreign minister um, a week ago in Tokyo who sees Putin once a year. And he told me, he said, when you speak to Putin, Putin is, he can go into great detail on many or most countries in the world. He's enormously well briefed, really professionally briefed on all World crises. You know, he gives it to, you know he can talk for uh, the longest time coherently through lots of details. He's in every respect an impressive leader. You know, very disciplined, impressive. May may not share our values. May be very dangerous. But don't underestimate him. Don't buy this newspaper caricature. You know of him. Russia and China, as well as Japan and India, have deeply impressive, strong, disciplined, intellectual leaders at this time in history. Keep this in mind. Um, two closing thoughts. I would say that because all great powers face challenges, the United States, for reasons I don't have to go into, in terms of democratic governance, the future of the two party system, etc. Russia's economy is declining. Really, uh, you know, you know China is beating the pants off the Russians in the Russian Far East, Central Asia. You know, and not just in Greece, but throughout Central East Europe, the Russians are making, the Chinese are making big investments. So Russia has real problems. China's problems are more subtle. China's problem come with, if any of you have read Sam Huntington's Political Order and Changing Societies, um, it, you know, what, you know what what he wrote was that if a country's institutions don't reform and modernize at a fast pace, then the development of a big middle class rather than good is actually politically destabilizing. And that's going to be a real challenge for China. And Xi Jinping knows this. He's, in fact, spoken about this. You know, you know, he's, you know, he's a really impressive guy you know he understands that if the Chinese system of governance and economy does not dramatically reform over the next 15 years China could have real political instability precisely because it's getting richer um, so all major powers have head issues um, and what that means I'd say is to close up is we're living in an age of comparative and where there's more anarchy than during the Cold War, obviously, and more than during the post-Cold War, which I date from the fall of the Berlin Wall in the mm-hmm. um, that um, you know there's you know the geopolit the geopolitical world is far more fragile than it's ever been because everything is more interconnected. That you know integration not only leads to great advances. in uh, in economics and financial markets, it also leads to geopolitical fragility. Thank you very much.